Axis and his forces will launch an armed attack on the government. They will commandeer the radio stations and the canal administration office. Subject, of course, to uh, advance payment for arms, equipment, and medical supplies. How much? Sort of money you boys leave under the plate, Elliot. How much? $20 million. C'est tellement nouvelle cette chanson française qu'il faut que je lis toutes les paroles parce que elle vient de la faire il y a trois jours. Elle a seulement trois jours et, et c'est pour ça que je les parole ici. Mais je vous promets que depuis aujourd'hui, elle va être très populaire en France. Vous voyez, je pense. La même, Hello and welcome to another episode of Tinker Taylor Podcast Spy. I am one of your hosts, Tyler. I'm joined by my co-host, Max. Hello. And Emma. Hello. Is it still International Women's Day today, Emma? Yes, it is. Are you feeling the vibes? I am. Um, I'm having a great time. How's it feel to be podcasting as a woman on International Women's Day? Um, you know, I feel really seen. That's I excellent. feel very special. Okay, quiet. Uh, Max. Um, yes. <laughs> just, she, she, uh, Emma should just be very happy that she should know she can't get fired from our podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, okay, we are going to be talking today about the second half, roughly speaking, of The Taylor of Panama, John LeCarré's um, jovial, but as you'll find out if you have read the book, um, incredibly depressing story of espionage in 90s Panama. So uh, I believe we are kicking off with chapter 12. And um, we are going to talk about well, chapter 12 to the end of the book. And um, at the end, we will talk more about what we're going to be reviewing in the next episode. But I'm going to put it here now in case people don't listen to the full episode, we are going to be watching the movie adaptation of what the hell's the name of it again? <laughs> a Most Wanted Man. A Most Wanted Man. Yes. Um, actually, one of my favorite John Le Carre works. Um, we're going to be watching the movie version starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, among many other good actors. So uh, if you're interested in uh, checking out the podcast, but don't have the time or energy or like to read or know how to read, you can watch that movie. And that'll be our next episode. And we are planning to have a special guest on the next episode. This is going to be a big, big get for all the math uh, math heads in our, uh, in our audience. So math heads, be prepared. All right. So let's crack on with the book. Emma, you are kind of producing uh, the Taylor Panama episodes. So why don't you kick us off and get us going with chapter 12? All right. So we're starting off with an Osnard chapter. Um, so Osnard is uh, up to some tradecraft. He is, uh, <laughs> well, first he's putting bets of 500 pounds each on greyhounds, and then it's he resigned himself to the rigors of his trade. Um, we start to get some backstory on Osnard, where um, we find out that he's essentially from a, a downwardly mobile, uh, once almost aristocratic family that has essentially lost its its money. 
um, where uh, the family home went through uh, be, being an old people's home, now an institute for young offenders, then a stable for racing greyhounds, and most recently a sanctuary of meditation for followers of an Eastern sect. So uh, his family has uh, experienced some decline, and uh, they talk about how that sort of helped draw him to uh, espionage because he was sort of the dissolute uh, former rich person who uh, briefly contemplated the priesthood. Um, uh, media, he did a short stint. Yeah, he did a short stint in, in media, media that ended when he uh, slept with somebody's wife. Um an animal charity where he uh, essentially <laughs> embezzled <laughs> until he got in trouble. And then finally, uh, his uh, the uh, university appointments board directs him towards the spies. And it's, uh, <laughs> I, I really like the quote there. Like, here at last was his true church of England, his rotten borough with a handsome budget. Here were the nation's most private prayers preserved as if in a museum. Here were skeptics, dreamers, zealots, and mad abbots, and the cash to make them real. Uh, <laughs> it's such a good, uh, I mean, this chapter, actually, I think, um, I think the first chapter of the book was my favorite chapter up until this chapter. And I actually think this is my favorite chapter in the book after finishing it. There's something so great about, obviously, this is in large part uh, John's kind of commentary on, you know, the more modern world of, of spycraft and this is kind of a weird period in history where, you know, in theory it is the end of history and there's not a lot of super interesting things going on, especially when we talk, when we get to Luxmore. Um, and he's talking a lot about the Falklands, which like really was such a, not that big war. I mean, it obviously was for the people who lived there, but um, you know, in terms of grand, grand things, that's kind of like his claim to fame, even though he screwed it up was, was that small encounter. And um, I, I love the picture that he paints of not only Osnard and his family kind of being this downwardly mobile um, aristocratic family that, you know, in a previous era of history would have commanded like immense power and wealth probably. And he does talk about how his family fortunes have like declined due to like, you know, some brothers took their money and like gambled it away and, and some, you know, made bad investments and, um, you know, his parents were distant and he talks about like in a really kind of sad part about his boarding school. And it seems like he was molested or uh, hints at that. Um, and it just is really, I don't know, the thing that made me think of the most actually is um, Domenico Lacerdo, who's a, a Marxist philosopher that uh, wrote a book called um, Liberalism, a Counter History that I really love. And one of the points he kind of makes is how liberalism as it evolved as a theory was really all about kind of the layer down of aristocracy that you can imagine Osnard's family being essentially trying to pull the reins of power down to their level so they could have decision-making power, but no further down, no mass democracy, you know, obviously no poor people, no slaves, uh, none of that getting, getting rights. And it made me think a lot about families like this, who in that kind of peak era of enlightened liberalism when they really held the reins of power in the big powerful nations of the world and seeing that slowly ebb away and how kind of prophetic it still is i guess for the time we live in now all these like decaying uh empires and decaying peoples it i don't know it was a really effective chapter for me 
Yeah, I really like the quote. Um, sorry, I lost my tab again. Um, I really like the quote there where uh, it talks about how the service appealed to Osnard because what he understood best was English rot and what he needed was a decaying English institution yeah. that would restore to him what other decaying institutions had taken away. So yeah. he's he's been essentially sort of, um, first he's sort of rejected by the sort of aristocratic or at least some, you know, upper class tradition. And then he's been victimized by this, uh, you know, institution of, uh, he describes it as odious boarding schools. And then he's uh, he finds this other, you know, decaying tradition of uh, espionage and he's mm -hmm. finds that he can not only thrive in it but uh, turn a profit because we see um, he thinks about his essentially his admissions interview where like, he basically just charms the his way through it where they're asking him questions about his patriotism his significant <laughs> others things like that and he's able to sort of hand wave away any red flags about his his record or anything like that um just by sheer charm yeah and there's such an interesting play uh with between kind of the smiley era novels where often it was about these people who were so bound up to an ideology or a duty that they would just do anything mm -hmm. you know sacrifice anyone to achieve their goal but there was some kind of an ideological uh, reasoning yeah. behind a lot of what people were doing whereas at this point it's like the only thing he cares about is maybe this is a way i can basically make a few bucks and uh scurry some away into a hidey hole for my retirement yeah i mean at this point there's no one in the book with an ideology beyond personal yeah. gain or like promote you know career or, or saving themselves or, you know exactly and you know even the the people who at at some point had an ideology like mickey or or uh, marta or someone have had it like destroyed and beaten out of them literally and, yeah, beaten out li of them. yeah like literally beaten and you know worse out of them um so they, they have nowhere uh they, they have no desire but to kind of just claw on and survive as well as they can at this point yeah. i do think it's interesting that you know with the with osnard kind of from this decaying aristocratic family that him and pendle are kind of like meeting in the middle on opposite paths whereas pendle's okay. trying to claw his way up um up successfully or unsuccessfully osnard's trying like as much as he can to grasp and prevent his descent. And they kind of meet in the middle in, yeah. in Panama and are trying to like both, even if they don't realize it, like save each other <laughs> um, in some sort of way. Yeah. 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 They are. Yeah. Yeah. I also like Luxmore's speech to him where he's kind of trying to convince him of the importance of Panama. And um, it's basically just kind of cope on his end. Where it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the back, it's the backyard of America's, you know, they're going to hand it over soon uh, to Panama. It's going to be incredibly important. Here's all the, you know, wouldn't it be great if the British can do something there? And wouldn't it be incredible to, you know, have a, have a hand in history. And, you know, it's, it's very clearly like, you know, a, a out of the way, uh, essentially intended to be a backwater posting for a new officer. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean there's like no what when he arrives, there's like what, four employees, five employees yeah, at the embassy. Yeah. There's the there's embassy, no yeah. one there. 
and they uh, that chapter kind of the the previous chapter where the embassy just details about how like they just don't do anything they have no power <laughs> they don't do anything they just yeah. kind of go from party to golf course i mean which is pretty much it. perfect for osnard like how how much what better to like be able to yeah. skim off as much money as possible when you have literally zero supervision or anyone to report to until the end obviously yes <laughs> Yeah, and, and Luxmar, our personnel, tells uh, uh, Osnard, which is actually almost more of a throwback to the Smiley era where you have a person called just called Personnel who's talking to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's good. And yeah, Smiley would have hated Osnard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Luxmar, too. Uh, yeah, I think he would have hated yeah, basically everyone in this um, book. And, and they're Pendle. basically just telling him, like, yeah, we have no one on the books down there. It's basically just... Uh, <laughs> abandoned so go hog wild see if you can make it relevant and maybe like make make some money make a name for all of us while you're there yeah it's funny too because Luxmore was really a person who um who would have like lived through the cold war and probably would have been like working in intelligence like through that period but he wouldn't have been you know at the age and status of like you know smiling his cohorts and he's clearly someone who is kind of trying to be a throwback in the way he acts and thinks about the world to the Cold War period, but there's just nothing really in the world that is eliciting the same kind of, uh, um, you know, world-saving, uh, uh, you know, um, events that were, were happening during the Cold War. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he, it he, seems so feeble when he talks about it. He also obviously wasn't like, generally really wasn't in the thick of anything you know he didn't see no as as you see later in the book like it's obvious he never really was like an agent in the field or active he was kind of like obviously always back at hq yeah. and was not you know he was uh south america latin america it seems for his whole career so he wasn't in the thick yeah. of like cold war intrigue or <laughs> yeah. or um you know russia or anything it seems like he kind of just stumbled into the Falklands and has kind and of like made his <laughs> yeah and like and then it turns out like his one agent gave them no no real good intel and yeah. he's kind of like coasted <laughs> off that for his entire career yeah I just I find his conversation with Osnard so interesting because um you know they're they're coming at it from basically the same sort of pecuniary motive and um so so Luxmar is like, yeah, go find a banker and cultivate them. Like <laughs> bankers are the good sources. And Osnard actually, you know, to his credit, applies some of his his talent for investigation. And is like, wait, this tailor is uh, uh, the real sort of conduit through which all of these society people are flowing. And not only that, but he's got a criminal record and he's oh, he owes a shit ton of money. So <laughs> pressure him. What's funny is that they think that Pendle will make a horrible. They actually think Pendle would make a horrible like head. They call him a head Joe, um, because of uh, he's making a lot of money and um, like I I think they just assume that he'll be able to keep keep spending and maintain that debt. And so they're saying that right. they have. I mean, this is what hooks Oz and artists. They're like, well, we're gonna have to get a shit ton of money to uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really entice this Pendle guy. Yeah. Like we we can't just pay him a regular fee. We're going to have to yeah. like help pay off his debt. And that's where Osnard yeah. actually really gets interested because he's like, well, I can skim off the top. As they said, salary is no good to him. It'll go straight into his bank manager's pocket. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't remember if this was later or in this chapter where it shows Osnar kind of going to the safe and he's the only one that has access to the <laughs> safe. And there's basically like money that he has to distribute to various people and then his like salary pile, which is for him. And it's like five times bigger than all the other. Yeah. And he's like, he's like making the fake columns. In his yeah, he's he's yeah, like, yeah. oh, yeah, he needs we need to pay them 10K when he's paying them like 2K and just like yeah, takes yeah, the other 8K. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, the, he sees a chance to to skim off the top um, because they have to pay Pendle so much. Luxmore originally, he you know he's like, this guy's an East End criminal. You we don't want to work with these types. And Osnard has to convince him that like, no, this is the best possible guy we can have. Yeah, I mean Osnard's so like then, and it, and right if if Pendle hasn't yeah. been like lying the entire time. Like it is legit yeah, exactly. like great source. <laughs> like he could yeah. you know he does. If Pendle hadn't made up everything, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like he does have access yeah. to all these people. It's not like a yeah. It's not yeah, a that, crazy that idea. It's not made up. Like he is actually meeting the president <laughs> and stuff. He's yeah. just not actually well, speaking. And it's to kind of funny him. because it was kind of a mixture of, you know, Pendle not, you know, ultimately being a good guy and not wanting to actually kind of sell out all these people that he was making this stuff up. But secondly, he was basically given this impossible task which was like needing to, in these very brief encounters, somehow as a tailor, be able to pry all this like secret yeah. information out of these people. So he, there was no way he was ever oh, no. able to. Never. I was going to say, they're, they're like, if he, there's also like, it becomes very obvious that like what they want from him wasn't actually, ha want him to tell them wasn't actually happening. So like, even if he <laughs> yeah. had been able to like pry information out of them, like yeah, they would have been like. Happening. Oh yeah, the missing hours in in Japan. He was just like getting a massage. They would have been like, "No, that can't be what was happening." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That actually reminds me of a um, like this instinct towards suspicion reminds me of this this great memoir I read of this uh, guy who was a um, a, a journalist who was in uh, East East Germany, and um, he got to read his Stasi file years later. And so he got to, mm -hmm. he, he matched it next to his diary and wrote a memoir about it. And um, he got to see how like any sort of unique or discreet incident he experienced during the day was sort of cast in this, this horrific light by the Stasi. So he would like <laughs> meet a, a woman for lunch or something and they would turn it into like, oh, is he meeting a new agent? Like, is this his handler? <laughs> um, are they passing on, you know, counter-revolutionary or, you know. <laughs> foreign intelligence and so um i think that really speaks to how like if if you want to you can make any minor detail yeah. sound um incredibly suspicious and i uh louisa kind of gets into that in yeah we get chapter. that as you say we definitely get that at the end yeah. where louisa's like finally like going like breaks in and finds all those notes and it's like wait yeah i mean like i remember this but like like that's not, just, how, like, the conversation that's not how it happened at all or like with like there's a little bit at the end when you know they're like, oh well, the doctors did an autopsy and said he committed suicide. But of course, they would say that. Like that just <laughs> yeah, yeah. commit suicide. Um, but that's kind of like the you know, I mean, that's probably you know that one of the biggest threads of John Lecrae's work, especially maybe the more modern work, is that. And, and this is not breaking fresh ground to anyone, but when you create these organizations with all this money that are put in place to quote unquote defend the nation or to expand uh project power out into the world these people's jobs are trying to find things to do 
And so yeah. if there's nothing to do, you're not going to have a successful career. So it, it behooves you to like uh, make this stuff up, maybe not to the level that Osnard did, but it, it actually, it makes sense how that stuff happens in real life. Like you were saying, Emma, in that, in that guy's, um, that journalist experience, because what else are you going to do? You're this massive secret um, organization. You're, 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 your whole job is to imagine all the horrible things that are going to be happening, right? Yeah, what's funny is how it just completely snowballs. So, um, you know, Osnard meets with Pendle yeah. in, in the next chapter. And um, so they're, he's updating them. And so uh, Pendle is telling him that um, Marta's, uh, like, alter ego, the Sabina, um, needs a new printing press. Uh, and so they need $5,000 for a printing press for these, like, radical students. And so, you know, this is completely made up. It is Pendle trying to get $5,000. And Osnard replies to this by saying, she buys her own. Osnard ruled shortly as he wrote down printing press and $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems so, so he, great. So, you know, he's itemizing it for the Brits as a $10,000 charge yeah. <laughs> for this radical student. That's like uh, when, they, when they go into the meet in the hotel for the first time, too. And the hotel guy's like, whatever it's like a hundred bucks and he's like write me a receipt for 500 <laughs> there's so many scenes like that they're so good yeah so um yeah they're they're both grifting each other and then the the real problem hits which is osnard starts pressuring him for more because um yep. uh london has concluded has has allegedly concluded that pendle's information is essentially not corroborated enough and so his wife is more useful as an actual government source since she's the uh, is assistant to, you know, the uh, incorruptible Ernest Delgado. And, um, and so they're like, yeah, you need to get your wife involved. And um, that's where things really pop off because um, they start sort of obliquely threatening to contact Mickey and start like messing with Mickey. Right. Like, well, well, we're wondering what's going on with Mickey. We're not really pleased with Mickey. And I think that's, he kind of plays on that, on Mickey to uh, get Pendle to agree to recruit, recruit Louisa. Recruit in quotation marks. Yeah. Um, you know, Pendle says she's got principles. They're not for sale. This isn't going to work. <laughs> uh, she doesn't like the English. She puts up with me because I'm upper class. Like, <laughs> <laughs> things like that and um and so he's like yeah just just butter her up take her to her favorite restaurant um you know tell her that <laughs> this will this will really help god and country if not i'm going to call in the essentially call in the debts for louisa because both their names are on it yeah and um yeah this is when fail. he gets like really because um, louisa's not even aware that uh that the farm is in trouble right <clears throat> Yeah, and, and he's Osnard is and 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 you have to think that he's kind of half doing it with like an eye to be like, if you are making this shit up, like I like regardless, we need to push you hard to either make up some better shit to like yeah. save me here, or come up with something good so my boss kind of gets off my ass. I guess I, I think by now Osnard's pretty sure that it's it means nothing and will come to nothing. Right, but, but he just wants he to keep the train care. rolling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's yeah. it's uh it's besides the point for him. The, the yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So then he has a call with Lexmar where he's um he's trying to report about how uh you know we're gonna try to recruit the wife. 
yeah, they're trying to recruit Luisa, and um, he, then he goes and he he parties, and he's back with Fran, which that whole subplot is very strange. Um, yeah, it doesn't really lead to anything. I guess the only anywhere. thing, it, yeah, the only thing it kind of does is, I guess it's supposed to give us the idea that he's such a ladies' man, even though he doesn't appear like he would be. But it that that doesn't really seem to impact the plot at all it's it's kind of a weird subplot and it's not even it's not really funny no way and i don't and i don't mean like oh he made jokes but they didn't land it's just like kind of blah and then like she at it's weird at the end she's like oh wait no now i actually do like malby like right after like ignoring him the entire time is just like it's a very weird flip Um, yeah it is not a lot of the embassy stuff i think could have been cut without a whole lot of impact on the plot yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then chapter 14, uh, Pendle is, you know, he's telling Osnar that he'll need some days to think about it, but he's realizing that he's reaching this sort of precipice in his espionage career where it's you either have to tell Luisa everything or invent some incredibly fabulous lies and get yourself out of it for the time being. And um, this is where he uh, he brings in what Max has identified as uh can you say the name of it oh so the prayer yeah oh the all het yeah i i so it's not exactly like this but it just it i i I, if i guess this is where kind of john le carre inspired but was inspired by but there's a prayer during yom kippur called the al het that's like you basically you you stand there and then you literally like you literally like kind of each time you, you say like every sin you've committed, like different sins that you've committed as a mm. group. And you literally hit yourself while you're saying it. Like each time you say it, you're supposed to like hit mm. yourself in the mm-hmm. chest and it's supposed to be to repent. And, uh, Pendle has the same prayer that he's gotten from Benny. That's like, you know, he kind of says it to himself as a mantra where he's like, we have harmed, corrupted and ruined. We are guilty. We have betrayed. We have robbed. We have slandered. We've perverted and led astray. We're just like, it seems like it's, it's kind of just a nod back to his, his heritage where he's, he's kind of yeah. interpreted right. this. It's, he, it's, call, he calls it ben, Benny's half remembered efforts at atonement. Yeah. So, it, it's, so it's, it's like, right. that's exactly, I mean, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's, yeah. it's definitely so it's like, like John McCary's translation basically of a real prayer that's supposed to be half remembered by someone yeah yeah. so it's it's gone through a few sort of intermediaries but yeah it's from benny's you know half remembered going to synagogue to this half jewish half irish uh, nephew who he's taken under his wing and then who is burdened by guilt and kind of has adopted this as like a mantra to (laughs) calm himself down it's kind of of beautiful though i I yeah i mean i love it's one of the I mean, Yom Kippur sucks to go go through. You know, you're <laughs> standing and in synagogue and not eating or drinking. And um, yeah. but this is one of the like kind of more moving moments yeah, of the day. It is cleansing, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah which uh, is interesting sure. because he then switches to pure rationalization, where he's like, <laughs> "Well, I had I was a listening post. I listened. I heard a few things, and I entered what we might call the er- area of positive hearing, in which certain <laughs> words are put into people's mouths that they would have said if they'd thought of them at the time." <laughs> yeah. That's so then good. he's like, well, then Andy made me get sub sources. And so, you know, then I had to, you know, come up with some sub sources. And she's inspired, like Sabina's inspired by real people. So it's all, it's all okay. And they're being paid. And 
well, technically I'm being paid, but <laughs> says the only trouble being that my subsources can't have the cash in their pockets because they don't know they've earned it and some don't have the pockets <laughs> as such. So I have to have it in mind, but that's only fair when you think about it because they haven't earned it, have they? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny too, because the the beautiful thing about this, and, and I can't remember what chapter the kind of US uh, military folks come into play, but up till this point, it's kind of been all very innocent, right? Where it's like, yeah. okay, yeah, like Pendle's lying and Osnard is kind of stealing some money, but ultimately yep. there's no no victims yet, right? Like it's like, yep. okay, well, maybe Osnard will get found out and he'll get canned, but big deal. And look, if Pendle's life gets destroyed, that's a, kind of a tragedy, but, you know, ultimately it's just one person. Um, and like no he was already tragedy. about to go broke anyway. Like there's right, this right. Is just delayed. It's just delayed the kind of inevitable of something like right. that. Right. But then it's like one once we kind of flip the switch and we see what the British um, establishment is doing with this information, what they're trying to do with it, that's when it like the story flips pretty quickly from like, oh, this is kind of innocent and fun and who cares to like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's sad because uh, we get this this great chapter of sort of introspection that uh, and then Harry has this great flash of inspiration where he's like Jonah and then we do another flashback which I think is right entirely too long and it's just John yes. having fun where you're like dude I know you want to write a book about these guys like this yeah. John Carey <laughs> wants so bad to write a spinoff about the brotherhood um, yeah, he yes. wanted Taylor Panama cinematic universe which is sure. like yeah it, it's a great chapter but it really like he talks about all these people just to get like oh I'm going to lie about a Japanese. Jonah Jonah said the Japanese would be. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, You could have done that in 20 less pages, but it's like, it is a fun chapter, but like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we find out that uh, Benny's last wish was essentially that uh, Harry would join this sort of loose uh, consortium of what appear to be uh, high powered businessmen and some scammers. Yeah. um, I assume it's like a bunch of old, like Jews in Panama, basically. Yeah. Better friend yeah. with this guy Charlie Bluthner, who was the millionaire that Harry asked for yeah. money, who was like, "Yeah, you're on your own." Right. Um, kind of helped him get started in Panama. And so, yeah, we get this chapter fifteen is basically him his sort of induction into this uh, this brotherhood uh, or would be an induction, and they're all arguing about Panamanian politics. And you have uh, an Af- a South African engineer named Piet. Piet, and then Olaf the Swede. Uh, you have a guy named Jonah who's like drunkenly ranting about the canal, and it's just mm. it's really fascinating, and it, it makes you a little sad because you're like, wow, I wish John Lacaria had just written a book about these like <laughs> their sort of escapades in Panama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we we get this like literal five page. Uh, declamation from jonah about how the japanese want to control the canal for um for for fishing and like they'll build the next um uh they'll build like the next generation of canal ships to like yeah. work through the the locks sea level so you don't need any locks it'll be yeah. a mile right. wide and <laughs> and, and he uses and some so- very um <laughs> colorful language shall yeah. we say yeah and oh, so yes. blue- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so he also remembers that Bluthner took him aside afterwards and was like, that guy Jonah is so full of it. The Japanese don't give a crap about Panama. They don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah. And 
he's like, well, you joined the Brotherhood. Pindle kind of puts him off uh, for then because uh, he's like, I'm working on a really big. Uh, he says he's he's got to grow. I'm working on it and it will come. And when it does and I'm ready, I'll be back to you like a hot cake. And so he's basically like, yeah, I'll join the Brotherhood once I pull off something really amazing. Yeah. Um, and then finally he remembers like um, this. I mean, this has just been a flashback. He remembers that uh, like, oh, yeah, Jonah said that like this whole chapter is just for him to remember that this one guy said, hey, the Japanese like he had this conspiracy theory about the yeah. Japanese. And so Pendle's like, right. okay, we're going to uh, now that I have to sort of involve Louisa, we're going to introduce this Japanese plot line and see what and happens. With that. And then he's like, oh, yeah, let me like let me try to like test this out on Louisa. And he's like, you know, I was hearing the other day that like the Japanese are going to like build their whole. And she's she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, that's not true. Like, <laughs> But the, the funny thing about this chapter is like like you're saying, Emma, there's no reason for it because they were there was already stuff in the earlier chapters yeah. where there was like about Japanese, Japanese businessmen. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like well, he, and that was enough. The that opening, enough. the opening of the book is literally them being like, "Oh yeah, Ernest Delgado's in Japan," like that. Right? That, yeah, that, like, like you don't actually need it. It's just yeah. uh, John. I think John Le Carre just he kind of wanted to write like an Ocean's Eleven about like old Panama yeah. guys, but which would have been great. He wanted to he wanted to stick that in there because he's got like backstories and shit. For these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just having a laugh, as they say. He had a bunch of these things where I think he just like thought of like moments and like vignettes that he's like, oh yeah, this would be great for right. And like on their yeah. own, each yeah, of them's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, it's more vignette than actually something directly. Yeah, it almost would have been like a better like short story or something. Yeah, I wanna I wanna hear about the brotherhood and their cons and <sighs> unfortunately their, their I don't think we will. Yeah, I, I think that's probably off the table at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they'll R. release R. a collection of, uh, you know, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna two problematic John fiction. Le Carre. They'll <laughs> yeah. bring him up. They'll bring him up in a hologram at Coachella. Thing that a lot of like fantasy authors do, where they like, oh, we found some notes in the estate, and someone oh, else yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it, but it's gonna be like ten books about the guys in Panama. I mean, like, yeah, Tom, and it'll and it'll be his son. It'll be the Le Carre's son. Yeah, if he has a yeah. son. I mean, Tom Le Can Tom Clancy has released like. 500 books since he died <laughs> yeah. so which was probably literally just someone found a notebook of him that where he was just um spitballing titles for other novels he oh would, yeah he'd definitely write. And it was just like you know knives at dawn or something something <laughs> and they're like wow from the notebooks of tom so powerful <laughs> yeah, yeah so evocative yeah yeah so chapter 16 um he's he's like okay well now i'm gonna start paying attention to my wife to butter her up which is very sad <laughs> yeah um, it is sad. it really is it's um it's it says that he he you know he hastens home to nurture and observe his agent in waiting and i just this this one quote i think goes back to what we were talking about in the previous episode about louisa where it says till now he fears he has loved his wife as a concept only as some standard of straightness that complemented his own complexity so he basically sees louisa as a sort of like prop to um you know upper middle yeah. class life in Panama, where she's, you know, this very yep. straight and narrow, uh, hardworking uh, American Christian woman. And, he, you know, he sees her as like everything that he wasn't born as or could be in life naturally. And so he kind of adheres to her as a sort of prop, but doesn't ever really see her as like having her own motivations where he's, he's like, yeah, that this would just be a really good thing to like have 
an American wife. And uh, so now he's 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 looking at her life with this new lens because he has to write it up and develop her as a source. And he's like, oh, yeah, all of this stuff is actually kind of like I didn't realize her life was, you know, interesting <laughs> or had depth to it. You know, he's kind of like, wait a minute, I'm not the main character. <laughs> um, yeah, her her Bible group. Um, uh, he's, he tells himself he is performing her a favor by touching everything she does with the want of his secret creativity. And so he's like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm doing her a favor, but I'm also betraying her but with all of this. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, then we have the scene that you mentioned where it's he's like, oh, yeah, I heard this funny story in the shop that they're going to do this old Japanese plan for the, for the canal and um, a new cut at sea level using an estuary. And she says... Harry, I do not understand why you bring me to the top of a hill in order to repeat rumors about a new Japanese canal. It's an immoral, logically destructive plan. It is anti-American and anti-treaty. So I hope very much that you will go back to whoever told you this nonsense and advise them not to propagate rumors designed to make the future of our canal even more difficult to adjust to. <laughs> and and so then he's like he's like really wounded by this because it's you know a, a terrible sense of failure overtakes Pendle and he almost weeps because it's. I was trying to take her with me and she wouldn't come. Doesn't she realize marriage is a two-way thing? Where he's like, no, you're supposed to. He was really hoping that she'd be like, yeah, that's that sounds like something that's possible. And we, you know, he. I think he's hoping that there can be almost a little bit more of a collaborative effort, even yeah, without yeah, her yeah. knowledge of this. Just like in the yeah. sense that she would be giving him anything useful rather than just him making it all up. But then he realizes that he's going to have to make it all up. And he's like incredibly <laughs> depressed by that prospect. So then he lies more and he's like, well, it's so top level. You wouldn't know about it. Yeah. But like if it was true, that would probably put him in, in an even more strange position. Because all of a sudden he'd be like, oh, my God, I actually am meddling in like international affairs in a serious way. So it actually would have been interesting. An alternative history of this book is if like he tells Louisa that and she's like, yes, we are pretty sure that's happening. And he's like, oh, <laughs> fuck, now what do I do? <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, and we also get a hint that she's her, as this sort of, you know, as he's getting further and further down this this sort of rabbit hole of espionage, she's also, like, her drinking problem appears to be getting worse because uh, she had taken to washing her hair a lot twice a day because we know that she drinks in the shower. And, um, and, and cleaning her teeth five times at least. So she's basically just constantly going back to the bathroom to drink. And um, and so just it's kind of going along with his sort of, I don't know, dissolution. Yeah. I mean, Louise is really of, of the people involved as opposed to like the character of the story, I should say, because the people of Panama are the real victims here, obviously. But um, the the characters in the story, Louisa is definitely like the prime victim of all this, I'd say. Yeah. And we finally, while he's working on all this, um, we finally get another, another meeting with Mickey where Mickey comes into the shop and, uh, during one of the sort of social hours where like, you know, everyone's around, people are hanging out and smoking and cause he has that clubhouse now in the shop. And then yeah, Mickey, room. Mickey is uh, like kind of, I, I guess he's drunk and he um, he's there with his friend Rafi, you know, the, the Panamanian playboy. And Mickey announces to the assemble company that his new suit is a piece of shit. <laughs> and so Pendle is like, 
losing his mind because he's like making my creation, making my failure, my fellow prisoner, my spy coming here to accuse me in my own safe house. And um, so he just starts yelling at him where he's like, if you want suits like Armani, go to Armani and don't come back. Um, and then he basically calls Mickey a lesser man. And <laughs> he just starts ranting at Mickey. And then finally, um, Mickey's like, I'm sorry. It's just I didn't like the pants. And <laughs> um, and then Harry just kind of looks around. Everyone's everyone's staring at him. Uh, Marta Marta's staring at him with uh, disapproval, and he's like, "I'm sorry, the pants will be perfect." <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, they love each other." <laughs> yeah. Because I I think I'm... his his friendship with Mickey and I, I I said this last episode his relationship with Mickey and Marta are possibly the only like authentic ones in this book. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because so he's obviously he's only with Louisa for the image. What he thinks it'll like, yeah, yeah, gain yeah. him. I mean, I don't right. think. I think he thinks he loves her. I don't think he's yeah. like totally. I think so. Faking. Yeah. Sexual love that he mentions, where he's yeah. like, yeah, you know, I'm really fond of her, and I, I love her in theory, like. Yeah, and she's like the mother of his kids and stuff. Yep. So there's that kind of like respect going on, but he doesn't love her the way he loves Marta, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, at the end of the chapter, he's talking to Marta, and Marta is basically like, I'm, you know, really disapproving of his sort of altercation with Mickey. But uh, he does ask her, you know, what would happen if the Japanese were secretly planning a new canal and uh, your opposition, your fake opposition got wind of it? And she's like, yeah, we would take the streets and burn these shops and <laughs> launch an anti colonial crusade. <laughs> And he's like, oh, okay, that's good. And <laughs> that's good shit. Yeah. And then we find out that the the bear who hasn't been mentioned in like 300 pages, but he's the um uh, he's a journalist who knows like everyone in Panama basically. And so he meets with uh the bear uh who says he needs to see you. <laughs> so, so chapter 17 is his his meeting with the bear. And the bear is like, look, I'm a journalist. I'm not, you know, I'm not stupid. You're, you're paying off the rice farm and you, you've got all of this new stuff in your shop. And, you know, where is this money coming from? And Pendle tries to sort of play him off by being like, I make suits for rich guys. I've got money. <laughs> and uh, the bear is like, I make money by selling articles, but I also sell information. So, like, don't fuck with me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he essentially has does a sort of turf thing, where he's like, he's like, I don't, you know, are you selling information? What's going on here? Um, you know, I'm the game in town, and um, Pendle is like, oh, are you trying to to take over like what I'm doing without like actually admitting to it? <laughs> and it's just this very weird conversation where. Pen Pendle then gets, you know, defensive and is like, I don't know who you're working for, but you don't know anything about me and you should probably pay for the clothes that I tailored for you um, so that Marta can clear her books. And then, you know, he makes this really horrible comment about Marta. Yeah. It's kind of another weird chapter in a way that like <clears throat> yeah, you weird. easily could have written around this. Like, the only thing the bear really functions as, um, as as we see in the coming chapter or near the end, is to be the one that kind of triggers Mickey to finally like take his own life. Yeah. 
and th- there's not really any other point to him in the story i guess making pendle a little bit more scared but like he w- he's already super f- scared at this point it, it again seemed like a weirdly n- unnecessary i mean i figured you could have accomplished the like tip off to the police or yeah. something in some other way i think i For sure i figured this is just another of like john le carre likes the character of the bear <laughs> is there are a lot of characters like the bear and the honorable schoolboy yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah yeah. just the the sort of foreign correspondents who are sort of yeah yeah a little bit past their time yeah 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 so then we find we find out at the end of the chapter that um marta has been visited by both the bear and uh a friend in the police who are asking questions about mickey um and about pendle and they were asked marta to spy on pendle so she immediately tells him that and then we get to chapter 18, which is back to London. Uh, we find out that London is incredibly suspicious of the intel that they've been getting yeah. because <laughs> they uh, they have no collateral. So they say no no SIGIN, no friendly liaison, not a squeak out of the Americans. Um, there's They call it overwritten and undersourced. Uh, they say that there's there's not even like a receipt or anything to prove what's going on. <laughs> And so then Luxmore is, you know, he starts bloviating, you know, he's like a proven negative today is the equivalent of yesterday's proven positive. So he's like the fact that there is no proof proves that there's something incredibly secret going on. Yeah, that, and that, that, that right there is like, that is modern intelligence, you know? Yeah. It's like the fact that we don't know that we don't have definitive proof that uh, Trump is a compromat <laughs> is, is exactly why he is. The piss tape is real. You'll never convince piss me. Piss tape is real. It's yeah. definitely real. <laughs> <laughs> a, there's at least one piss tape. It may not be that one. That's true. There's a piss tape out there. <laughs> well, we find out that they're like inflating every... Uh, in there. That not only is Pendle inflating ordinary stuff into sort of calamities to Osnard and then Osnard is inflating it to, you know, get bit bigger yep, expenses right. and make it sound good for Luxmore. But Luxmore is inflating <laughs> it to uh, this Johnson guy and being like, um, you know, why, why does the, uh, why is Ernesto Delgado like in the president meeting in, at unsociable hours with spurious Japanese Harbor masters because of the like couple <laughs> hours that are unaccounted for in Japan. Right. And yep. so they're well, kind of just blowing up everything. And so you see how it becomes this sort of house of cards built entirely on Pendle making shit up from like Luisa's story. Yeah. And just this one guy trying to cover his ass to pay this debt so he doesn't have to tell yeah. his wife that he's lost her inheritance like snowballs into, right. into this. Yeah, and then we get this section which is... Um, like pretty much all of them are characters that John Le Carre just ma- made up and decided to introduce near the end of the book. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah. Or it's all, um, they're meeting with a few sort of, it's like media in this British media yeah. Baron and then a, um, named Jeff Cavendish. And then, uh, this other guy, Ben, Ben Hatchery, who is, um, Oh yeah. He's like, it's like a Murdoch figure. basically. Oh, Ben Hatchery is the media baron, sorry. Yeah, and, and then, then Cavendish um, is like his right-hand man. 
Yeah. And then um and then they meet with some Americans and uh this Chug Kirby and uh another uh, this guy Elliot. Yeah, and this guy Elliot who's a lawyer and journalist who um uh, has a uh sort of disproportionate power as sort of a pundit and then um the colonel yeah, where do they say he writes for the washington, washington post times. washington times uh, washington like, times right which yeah. is owned by uh the moonies in real life um oh interesting isn't that the epoch times no epoch times owned by falun gong oh okay <laughs> both, both 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 asian religions own that have like Far right paleoconservative newspapers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so hard to track. In Canada recently, um, I didn't receive one, so I'm not sure why, but I think a Falun Gong mailed an, ep- an, uh, an, an issue of Epoch Times to everyone in Canada. Apparently. They're literally on like every corner in New York City. Like everywhere yeah, you see like those free oh, newspapers, there's an Epoch Times. <laughs> uh, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> This is important so, to the understanding of oh, yes, <laughs> so, yeah. So they're all they've all gathered for this this sort of I don't know they're like the Suicide Squad of guys who are making out text for invasions. No, I mean it's actually it's like a conspiracy. Literal everyone wants to believe is real. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like five, like it's the media literally manufacturing a war. Like, oh, how can we create this war? What's What's interesting is the the sort of think tank Washington Times pundit guy that they have Elliot is like, look, you know, we could go in like the Americans are kind of interested, but here's the thing. We can't go in without a peg or a hook. Like we have a condition where we need a smoking gun to invade. And so otherwise we're just going to, we're not going to do anything and the the Brits are going to be on their own. And so then the, and so they're like, yeah, we had a peg with Noriega because, um, the D- dignity battalions were mislanding, mishandling American women, and you know he had a bad, bad reputation of being a, a authoritarian dictator. And so we were able to go in and, and do something. But um, they they try to figure out like what they can do to create a pretext for invasion and be really important. So this is where we actually start to see. Um, the first part of this book has been fucking around and we are now starting to get to the finding out portion. <laughs> yeah, very much so. This reaping, is, I mean, yeah, it's like, the, what's the tweet? Me reaping versus me sewing. Yeah, me, <laughs> yeah, me sewing, me reaping. Fuck, this sucks. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, well, what are we, what, what should we do with um, Mickey Abraxas, the leader of the silent opposition? Should we frame him as a false flag? Like, what can we do? And then they they start arguing about like which media baron is going to um get get to go in with the invasion. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Atria is like, I want exclusive first bite. You know, everyone else, uh, my cameras and my scribes go in the first wave. Well, and and we kind of find out too, like previously to this, that a lot of actually the funding for the operations in Panama is actually coming from private interests. Yep. Um, I think Luxmore at some point is basically like we can't get enough funds like through the treasury for the things that we want to do. So we have to be able to go like groveling to like, you know, media barons to give us money to like, yeah, I mean, it's like the, so they can sell papers. Yeah. It's the rot of like neoliberal Britain is that, you know, they've yeah, they've hollowed out 
they're like, you know, they want to be a big boy government, but they have to grovel to these media barons to operate their <laughs> yeah. spy service. Um, right. Americans. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they can't even um, start a war on their own. They have to get the Americans to do it. Them before yeah. Then. Well, they're, yeah. they're saying that they, um, they end the conversation by saying, who's the bitch who writes our doom and gloom shit. And then they're, they're <laughs> like, yeah, well, it's time to start hyping stuff up about Panama. Um, Tell her I want the students larger, link them with the poor and the oppressed, drop the communism. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Give us more about the silent opposition looking to Britain as a democratic role model for Panama in the 21st century. So we go from, you see where this tiny, tiny seed of a, uh, you know, misheard conversations and stuff that Pendle is sort of making up and deliberately misinterpreting have gone through enough sort of hands in this this game of telephone yeah. that it's now becoming an actual pretext for an invasion and this is where we actually start veering into uh alt history which i think is interesting yeah um, I mean, it's that that like you know get rid of the communism is also kind of a callback to when pendle's first talking to osnard in the club and he's like oh yeah mickey's like leading this student opposition but not too left right. like they're like the good yeah, type they're, they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah they're like regular liberals yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, so then um, there is like a little two-page interlude that I really like where uh, Luxmore uh, has to has to fly and um, he's he's just super excited by going overseas on this this mission and he's got a fake passport and um, he has to figure out what to do with this secret uh, uh, briefcase. Oh yeah, this... uh, he has to take with him everywhere. So he has to like take it into the lavatory and ask the stewardess to like watch his seat for him. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was interesting because it's yeah. it's just the gap between um, these sort of what John Le Carre refers to earlier in the novel and throughout many of his works as espiocrats, um, yeah, yeah. Ver versus like they're actually out in the field and he's like, "Fuck, what do I do with the confidential briefcase?" <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I have to remember. He, oh, my name's Mellors. I can't tell her I'm Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and he like he feels like he's fucking James Bond, but he's just yeah. like carrying some briefcases, basically. Yeah. 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 So then um, we get yet another view into the embassy, and so Stormont and Malt Maltby are golfing. It's it's not particularly relevant to the plot. Um, basically, it's. Yeah. They say that the British government has decided to lend secret support and aid to Panama's silent opposition. And so the um, the embassy people are now supposed to be more involved and sort of uh, not necessarily take the responsibilities away from Osnard, but uh, sort of take ownership of the whole project as a, because it's, it's now a, more of a, a diplomatic thing than a, a secret espionage right. thing. And so they're like, yeah, he's too young and inexperienced. And, you know, this is how we can make our names. Um, yeah. And money. That's and money. the. Yeah. We're, yeah. They say we shall need an enormous amount of stuff. Radios, cars, safe houses, couriers, not to mention material, machine guns, mines, rocket launchers, masses of explosive, naturally detonators, everything your heart has ever dreamed of. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know if it's in a later chapter where Fran says it or something, but it's literally like. You know, it's a kid like seeing all these toys and he's like finally like, oh, I can buy all the toys I ever yeah, wanted. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, and Malti have, I've been, you know, in this diplomatic staff of like less than half a dozen for 
ages and they've decided that, you know, they say this embassy is about to take an amazing leap forward from a silted diplomatic backwater. We shall become the hottest post in the rankings. I mean, in the ratings. And Promotion, medals, notice of the most flattering kind will overnight be ours. And it's so depressing, right? All this stuff, like, it's very funny and, and the writing's funny, but when yes. you think about it, it's so fucking depressing. Oh, it's but, awful. Yeah, no, and, and every a weird single way, person like, here is inflating this stuff so that they can make money off of it. Yeah, and, and that they're Through like death. literally like this will be we're gonna start this war and it's gonna be so awesome for us, you know? <laughs> like there's not even a hint of like, yeah, but you know, is isn't it gonna be bad that, you know, inevitably there's gonna be, you know, hundreds or thousands of people that die. It's it's just like, damn, this is gonna be so cool. I'm gonna feel like a man again and my like my bitch wife who's always sick at home can't like drag me down. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm leave gonna her finally. Cool. You're gonna tell her to yeah, leave me yeah. and and yeah. we can't even like you can't even pretend that it's going to be like a just or pretty war because we've had the description of what happened last yeah. time they attacked Panama. They yeah. just like they just they bombed, bombed the poor people. Right. They left the rich buildings. It was just like immiseration for nothing. And now they're going to do it yeah. again for personal gain. Yeah. Basically. For even less than nothing. Uh, one, of, yeah, yeah. one of the worst bits is they actually do acknowledge that the material is, is fake. Yeah. I mean, they all know. Everyone knows. Now, I don't know and you don't know which one of them makes it up. <laughs> someone makes it up someone is and what's what's interesting is they think that the sources are real but that they're making up the information and potentially right. opposition but he's yeah. like yeah is it Buchan? is it mrs Buchan? is it one of the sub sources abraxas domingo the woman sabina or that disgusting journalist one sees around the place <laughs> he was like yeah we don't know who's making up information but somebody is but yeah. then malt um Maltby and uh, and Stormont get way more concerned with the fact that Fran is fucking Osnard than the <laughs> fact that they're about to start a war on a phony pretext. Yeah, and so they they discuss that instead. They're like it's very yeah, big, like Bukin. burn after reading. Vibes they, yeah, they say Bukin uh, is a fiction. Book. The reports are Tosh, as you call them. He says we're not being asked to do anything. We're merely the servants of a higher cause. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's kind of funny. It's kind of the funny thing, too, where all the way up the chain, <clears throat> everyone's kind of embellishing, making the material more salacious, more interesting. But then on the way down, everyone's like, look, man, I'm just I'm just doing my job here. I, yeah. I'm not responsible for this shit. Like, we're, we're just uh, I'm just listening to orders, man, um, which is like the classic. Yep. Uh, yeah. The, I don't know. That's just the classic perfect move for people in these positions. Yeah. Like, and, and going back to the theme of decay, like we get a sort of gloomy sentence at the end of the chapter, sort of summing up Stormont's thoughts on his life until now. Stormont sees his future until now. Patty's cough eating, eating her to nothing, the decaying British health service, all they can afford, premature retirement to suck Sussex on a penance, the going, going gone of every dream he has ever cherished in the England that he used to love six feet underground. This is very dismal. Yeah. Yeah. The book really like over the last few chapters of the book gets crushingly depressing yeah there's like you lose all humor um whatsoever yeah, i think yeah. this kind of i i don't know why it, i mean it's, it's a similar to i brought it up last time that this book in a weird way reminds me a lot of catch 22 in that like mm. one you get a lot of these like flashbacks and kind of stuff happening out of order and things like that and then it also just kind of it starts out very funny and ends up in this really dark and kind of yeah miserable place with almost no hope whatsoever 
Um, yeah. And it's like, look how much fun all these funny characters are having, and they're yeah. making up these funny lies. It's so fun. And then it's like, oh no, the American military is coming now. Fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, in chapter twenty it starts where, where Pindle and Marta are, are together, and they've uh, they've come to uh, intimidate uh, Marta again. Uh, or they've come to intimidate Marta and they're saying that uh, she, Mickey is a spy. His drunkenness was just a trick to hide his spying. Pindle is a spy. Uh, and then Pin, Pindle gets the, the phone call from Anna, uh, Mickey's girlfriend, who tells him that uh, Mickey has shot himself during uh, this, this uh, fireworks festival that is really a huge deal in Panama. Um, right. And that she's she's just found him, and um, so I, I, this is essentially the part where the book like there's less than a hundred pages left, but from here it doesn't ever really return to a normal narrative. Like it's this very weird yeah. sort of dreamlike dissociative tone, mm-hmm. um, because Pendle basically like loses his mind about his best friend getting killed, or you know killing himself because of mm-hmm. being pressured um because of what pendle did essentially yeah 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 because the police were threatening him and calling him a british spy yep um and so marta's like it's not your fault um pendle gives her a ton of money and tells her to go to miami and um basically like cool her heels there i th- also i mean i think this is a moment where you realize also just how much money that pendle has been pulling yeah pulling in, in yeah. off of all these sources like at the beginning of the book, he couldn't, you know, he's like in debt on this, it's a lot of money, but like a $100,000 loan, which, yeah. Uh, and then at this point, at the end of the book, he literally pulls like, what, $10,000 out of his pocket, $7,000 yeah, out of his pocket. Like, that That's it, yeah. the money he just has carrying around. And then you find out like there's just yeah. drawers, drawers full at home. Because he, obviously he's, you yeah, know, he's paying yeah. for these quote unquote sources, which are just him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the, the 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 irony about the Mickey thing that's really depressing too is you think like in a different way the story could have gone. Pendle could have gone to Marta and Mickey and been like, "Look, yeah, I'm in big trouble. Yep. I need your guys' help." And they would have known so that when the police came to Mickey and they're like, "Hey, you're a British spy," he wouldn't have freaked out in the same way because he would have understood and been a part yeah. of it. And that you know that they would have done that for him, but just because of the way Pendle's character is, like he he never would have done that because he he loves them and he's so close to them he didn't want to like involve them in his well, own Marta's kind of involved. Feeling. Yeah, but sorry. he just he doesn't Oh yeah, sorry. Mar- yeah, Marta is, but not Mickey. Not Mickey. Not Mickey. Yeah. But I think Mickey's yeah, I like think he couldn't bear to tell any of this to Mickey because at yeah. first he deludes himself into thinking it's his gift where he's like I'm making my best friend who's this complete drunken wreck who's severely traumatized like I'm making him into this incredible leader. And then it just, as things get more serious, it's like, well, how will I ever explain this? Um, What am I doing to him? Like, you know, maybe one day I'll make it all clear, but there's, there's just like never the right time to actually confess it all. And he just kind of keeps punting it just like with telling Louisa what's going on. Yeah. I mean, he never, I mean, at least in the book, he never tells the only person who ever knows is Marta. Like he, he never tells anyone. Uh, so yeah, we switch back to the embassy, and uh, they're essentially they're telling <laughs> Osnard that he's essentially been taken 
off the project <laughs> basically, and that it's now the embassy team who's handling it. Um, and this is the funny part where they open the safe and they see all the gold bars and stuff, and they're like, "Holy shit!" They realize that he's been the way he, the reason he's been spending money like crazy is that like it's very obvious that he's. This is where all of his money is coming from, is that he's got this sort of endless, unaccounted for stream of, of <laughs> gold bars and banknotes. And, yeah, like uh, what the chapter before he bets, like he he bets, he turns, he like gambles $50,000 or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and so then we actually finally get a, um, a, a sort of Marta perspective. Which is great because I love Marta. Wait, um, can I just before we go to Marta just yeah. quickly? I just I do think it's funny is that like he is getting Osnard's getting you know punted off and pulled off this, and it's not even if they do realize it's because he's like been stealing money. He's not getting in trouble for stealing money. It's just they want they are like kicking him off because they've like basically realized how much money they can be yeah. making off this, and they're like, oh wait, <laughs> now now we're gonna take this over and and take all the money that you've realized yeah, you can, yeah. you can take, um, it, you know, it's not like you're in trouble for doing it. It's, it's just our turn now. Yeah. They're not, they're not horrified by it at all. And in fact, no. Malfi is so excited by it that he immediately turns around and is like, I'm getting divorced. You want to go out for dinner? with me? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. And then we, we get to Marta and, and we find that Harry had given her $7,000 and, um, you know, we find out that the police had been uh, questioning her, uh, and she kind of goes through her own uh, side of the story, where we find out that like they've never actually had sex; they just kind of like lay there together and sort of touch each other, and that's like that distinction is really important to her. Um, mm -hmm. And she tells them stories of who we might be if we were young and brave again in the days before they took my face off with their clubs, and that is love, and um. We we hear the story again about how he how Pendle was like it, it says he protested his undying love for her and then um, they're on a drive to Marta's apartment and that's where uh, they got pulled over and you know she was tortured by the police and that it was Mickey who you know once once again who they got her taken to that sort of like back alley surgeon and um, that's where. The doc doctor who informed on Mickey and wasn't able to inform on Pindle only because he didn't know his name. And so um, Marta goes into the cutting room and is like, I guess I'll just leave the money in the desk. Like, I can't I can't do this. And Luisa is there just clicking a, li <laughs> clicking a lighter on and off and staring at Marta. And Marta looks at her and it turns out that um, uh, Lu Luisa is just like wearing a... a a thin red cotton wrapper and nothing else and she's like clearly drunk and she's just flicking the lighter on and off and she's like are you fucking my husband <laughs> i do yeah. love the and, line though where marta's like the truth was like way more painful than the lie where she was like no i'm not fucking your husband and yeah the only that's reason that's line. true is because of like a tiny quirk of like yeah. history where we learn like Oh, they were gonna go to a hotel, but she's like, "No, let's go back to my house." Yeah. And, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know, and then she like does tell the truth. Like, who else does he love? And she's like, "Yeah, it's me." Like, that's you know, he's in love with me, but we're not sleeping together. 
And um, and then she realizes that Luisa is drunk. And um, so then we cut to uh, Osnard uh, again, and he's meeting with Luxmore, who is now in Panama. And then, um, so Luxmore is basically just uh, jabbering at him about, uh, you know, how they're going to do really well together. And how, you know, there's a medal in here somewhere for you when this is over. And then uh, he's like, hey, do you have a girlfriend? And then <laughs> Osnard just immediately starts trying to sell him on the idea of, of safe houses and stuff. Because I think he realizes, like, he's like, you know, they're taking me off of this, but I can still grift my way into yeah. some other stuff. <laughs> so he's like, there's yeah. some really great property that we can buy as safe houses. <laughs> and, um, and then he gets his knock on the door and Luisa's there and we get back to one of Luisa's sort of drunken uh, narrations where um, she, you know, she's really jealous of her sister. Um, she's drinking a lot. Um, she thinks that Harry's out with the, his mistress. Um, she's mad about like the rice farm. Um, something that's funny is uh, one of her, one of her friends, or they, she calls her Panama's Minister of Misinformation. So clearly, like some sort of society gossip um, <laughs> calls, and Luisa freaks out and is like, "If you hear any rumors about my husband uh, enjoying oral intercourse with Barnum's baby elephant, I would be grateful if you would tell your twenty best friends and never tell me because I don't want to hear your fucking voice again till the canal freezes over." Good night, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> Sabina, yeah. the rad stud. <laughs> yeah she just like flips out um and she decides okay we're finally gonna figure out what is going on with harry and so she gets a hammer and chisel and breaks open his locked desk and he uh finds uh thousands of dollars in his drawer um all of his notes um distorted versions of things harry had pumped her about over the dinners he liked to cook her um, stuff about Delgado, which makes her really upset because she has such uh, admiration uh, for it. And then she finds out about Sabina, which is Marta's uh, alter ego, but she gets really jealous of Sabina. Um, which is funny because, like, she she's right, but she's yeah, right she's for right. the wrong reason. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so then uh, she finds sort of Harry's fake uh, diary that Delgado, so it's like Delgado's diary that like Luisa maintains, like his appointment book. But Harry made a fake copy with, um, with really scandalous stuff. So it's like midnight meeting with Japanese harbor masters, <laughs> <laughs> and so she gets a, a screaming phone call for for Harry, and it's I I I think this chapter this chapter is supposed to be like before she shows up um to marta to marta yeah yeah because yeah, she's clearly she's getting a phone call from anna at this point where right yeah Anna's calling the house and being like i need harry and um yeah. uh louisa probably wouldn't be super familiar with anna and she's also very no, drunk so she's anna. like yeah get out of my husband's life you hear me sabina you fucking bitch fuck you sabina get out of my rice farm too <laughs> yeah. and anna's just like what the fuck yeah. yeah, and so this whole chapter is just really crazy. Um, yeah. And she ends up obviously like 
fr- freaking out and kind of going about town and kind of um, running into everyone that she thinks is like involved in yeah. either like hiding Harry's mistakes or or actively like making him do these things. So he goes to see Marta and then he goes to see Osnard, which results in like, I, I don't know, a pretty weird scene where they, a page, um, they sleep together. Yeah, because the, 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 the scene is basically Luxmore is there talking with Osnard. Osnard hears uh, Louise at the door and he has to figure out a way to get Luxmore out of there without them talking to each other because she, he's going to realize very quickly that she isn't involved in anything. So he kind of gets him to hide. She comes in, he leaves at the back door kind of thing. Then within like 10 minutes, they're screwing. Um, I don't know. It was a bit, it was a bit weird. It was, I mean, that was, it was very weird. To me, yeah, and he, like, he has to like pull her into a room, and so then she's like, she thinks it's a come on, and then they're like just kind of standing there. It's very awkward and weird. <laughs> and then I don't, I, I, maybe you two understand. I don't get what is her whole thing about being tall is bad. Like, yeah, every I know, model I, I know is like six foot tall. Like, what I don't all, all, the, models all, the, all, the, all the models that I know, of course. Well, that I hang no, out with you know, just, no, all the uh, models I know are six one, but whatever. No, Go whatever. On. Yeah, sorry, I meant six two. You know, um, but like the only I, models I respect are five nine kings, like myself. <laughs> five nine kings. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's just that she does. She feels like she's like unwomanly or whatever. Like okay. I don't know, yeah. she feels tall and ungainly because yeah, it's all rooted right. in how she feels like her sister is way more attractive. Her sister, yeah. I, I think yeah. it is also just like a weird. She even mentions her sister. To Osnard, and he's like, "Who's Emily?" <laughs> like, why the fuck would he know who she is? Emily sounds hot. What's she up to? Yeah. Um. So then Osnard is like, you know, finally they're talking, and and Osnard is like, "Oh, your husband's doing something very brave, and we all think he's, you know, he's really cool, and so don't give him <laughs> any, any any gruff." And um. So then Harry actually calls Osnard, and um. I, I wish we had had a little more of this sort of thought process behind this because Harry uh, calls Osnard and says that Mickey was murdered. Yes. Right. Like, I kind of wish right, you could have yeah. gotten more of a window into Can that decision. Find out, like, what, why he decided to say that. I don't know if, like, what. I think yeah. it's the same impulse to, like, make things beautiful. And he doesn't want to say that Mickey shot himself because he was scared of going and back and getting you know sexually assaulted in prison he doesn't want him to see weak again yeah but also i think he thinks that this is a way that it'll kind of wrap everything up without yeah sure. oh yeah that oh, he's like yeah the silent opposition's done Make yeah he was killed that they're gonna disperse has no idea that this is actually going to you know that, he doesn't know he's in the finding out stage so no, right yeah, yeah. he's still yeah. in the more fucking <laughs> fucking wrong stage starting to find out um the last few chapters here are, um, I think, some of the best parts of writing uh, in the book mm-hmm. to get this sort of almost dreamlike narration where Harry, we're back to Harry. He's navigating through this, you know, this really joyous fireworks festival. Um, and it's, you know, a direct contrast to the sort of both the invasion that, um, r- you know, ruined uh, so many people's lives uh, previously. and you know, the sort of warfare and everything that, you know, brought Mickey and Marta to such devastation. 
Um, and then there's also the, like, it's contrasted with this um, fireworks festival. And I think that's really an interesting contrast. And he's saying, you, you know, he's mourning for Mickey, um, where they've, they've got Mickey in the, in the car, basically, because they have to stage some sort of end for Mickey that's better and yep. um, figure out what to do. And so he knew that in all of Panama and in all his life, he had only ever had one friend and now he had killed him. He saw no difference anymore between the Mickey he had loved and the Mickey he had invented, except that the Mickey he had loved was better. And the Mickey he had invented was some kind of some sort of mistaken homage, an act of vanity on Pendle's part to create a champion out of his best friend to show Osnar what grand company he kept because Mickey had been a hero in his own right. And he realizes that, you know, all along Mickey has been this incredibly brave and courageous person who survived these things that, you know, a, a lot of people would have, you know, very rightly broken under. And um, and so he's, he's like, it's not Mickey's fault that, you know, he had these weaknesses and that he was, like, fucked up from what happened to him. And it's, but it is my fault that, you know, they thought he was a British spy and has have pressured yeah. him and killing himself. And, um, so he's, he's driving and, um, there's a sort of disturbing part where they say he must have dozed for a time and probably he took a wrong turning as well. So he's just like totally out of it. Um, then he's walking through the fireworks festival and, um, and he was walking slowly as condemned men will, keeping to the center of the street and smiling. And so there's just all these people partying around him, and he's talking about the missiles and fires and stuff that he sees that are, you know, celebratory. So then he's in the house with Anna, and, you know, trying they're trying to, like, clean it up a bit and, like, get Mickey out. The, the part about this section that really sticks with me is his description. And I think, I think Anna... How, describes it this way first but she's like he's upside down and they keep coming back to him being positioned upside down and it's this very bizarre um image that kind of comes into your mind when you're thinking of of what that would look like and the kind of connection to mickey being his head's blown off and upside down and like harry's world kind of getting inverted and everything going fucking haywire it's it's a very a very good evocative image that, you know, John's always great at pulling those out. Yeah, so he takes Mickey's gun and they're basically like, they s sort of smuggle him out of the house. And they have to pretend to these kids that he's like their drunk friend that passed out. And it's just this like really macabre scene. It's the last like kind of funny moment in the novel where they're like, you know, hauling this dr quote unquote drunk guy down the stairs and trying not to drop him like weekend at burning Mickey into the car yeah. to, to fake his murder is like a really dark and kind of, I don't know. I thought it was funny. Kind of funny moment. Um, yeah, the is. last like right. tiny bit of levity in this novel. <laughs> yeah. So then he's, he's, they, he's takes him to this sort of um, beautiful spot that he has, he, he found and, um, in a desert made by man and mangrove trees, so selenated that even the earth itself was dead. And he ties Mickey's wrist together and then um, shoots Mickey in the left, uh, right underneath the left and right shoulder blades. And then um, to make it look like a, um, a professional awesome. hit job, because he's got like the bullet in the head and then the, yep. under the shoulder blades. And 
and then they just leave the body there and you know it's trying to make it look like a professional killing and that's when he calls Andy and is like yeah Mickey was m- murdered and this is what happened and then um uh Max had mentioned to me earlier that it's funny that um the next chapter like John LeCarry will spend like 50 pages on this uh brotherhood stuff and then when they actually invade Panama um on this sort of uh, U.S. invasion that's uh, helped out by the British. Uh, John LeCarrie uh, puts it in basically five pages that are mostly headlines and talking about how various yeah. newspapers covered it. <laughs> yeah, so we find out that the Hatry Press, they were the ones who got the exclusive story. Um, yeah, and, and again, this is where I said, you know, they veer into alt history. Like, obviously, this invasion never happened of the year when, when Panama was returned. Um, so, you know, we're firmly in alt universes here um the hatred press is saying like oh the british lion shows its teeth um yeah the mild british a scion of panama's political establishment was found mutilated um (laughs) uh there's a headline saying no collusion there's another very (laughs) there's a cute little reference to our man in havana where uh our man in panama Panama. I think this yeah. is also, it's one of the more, un, I think this is very unusual in John LeCarrie's work is that in, when you're dealing with spies, that it's very easy to kind of do these alt histories because they took place in like silence and no one reported on them. So like, right, you can yeah. pretend this happened under the surface when like, you know, you could pretend that the spy who came in from the cold happened in real life because, you know, that was secret. No one knew about it. But, like, this is one of the few where it's like, oh, this is a huge fake war he is, like, written about, which is something, like, you can't fit into, like, our history. It's, like, a very different, in that sense, it's kind of a very different novel than what John LeCarrie normally writes. Yeah. Yeah, so we sort of figure out what happened to a few other characters where, you know, Osnard left and they're claiming that they don't have any idea of his whereabouts and then you know ambassador Maltby was recalled um fran from the embassy resigned yeah and there's the the whole kind of uh, part of the scene is uh reporters asking like a press flack for the government about all these different people and him basically just feeling like no comment they were recalled yeah and they're getting it um, all completely wrong so they're like we're yeah. fran and mickey abraxas lovers like they're <laughs> yeah yeah was happening yeah yeah. And then uh, it's regarding Pendle, the very mention of his name was the subject of a grand slam gagging order observed by every patriotically minded newspaper and television network in the land, such as the fate of secret agents everywhere. And then finally, the last few pages, chapter 24, where we get a view of the night of the invasion and what happened to Pendle because there's no mention of him in the English press. And, um, right. We get another, uh, this is my favorite Jean Le Carre quote, uh, which is his, like we mentioned before, sort of his translation of this uh, Yom, Yom, Kippur Yom Kippur poem. Yeah. Sorry, I totally butchered that. No, it's that. fine. <laughs> um, it, where, you know, I couldn't find a reference elsewhere. So it's it's like, it's his rewording of it basically and then putting his own yeah. sort of Le Carre spin on it. And it's, our power knows no limits, yet we cannot find food for a starving child or a home for a refugee. Our knowledge is without measure, and we build the weapons that will destroy us. We live on the edge of ourselves, terrified of the darkness within. 
We have harmed, corrupted, and ruined. We have made mistakes and deceived. And so we get another repeat of uh, what happened during the first invasion where Pindle basically just like walked down on his family because he was like, I got to find Marta. And um, yeah, but this time he's he's. And it's a very dreamlike state, and, yeah, and it's, uh, it's still in this kind of first from reality. Person. He's like slipping between invasions yeah. and three things that yeah. happen to him. And that's the you know Max brought this up kind of offhand uh, when we were talking about this, but he was like, you know, how much of this happened this way? Like, was this real? Like, you know, what actually happened? And and it's quite interesting because there's also parts earlier in the um, scene where he's um, going to find Mickey, where he's kind of um, describing people talking, like yelling at him out of windows, like they're um, like guns being fired at him. So there's this weird like melding in these scenes of like war and reality kind of all coming together. So that's actually like an interesting way of reading it is like, did this actually happen? Or was it like a weird mixture of the past flashback with present I don't think that's the case, but that, it, it actually so. is painted in a way that makes. Yeah, I think it's more just like it's. He's never processed any of this trauma. Like no. he right. just shoved it away. His only sort of emotional processing ever happens with Marta, and they don't even talk. They just like lay there, and yeah. because they have this sort of shared secret, and so I feel like this is like this is finally the point where he's cannot deal with it. And so he, you know, he walks out and he's, he's just started walking. Um, he's going back down towards the, uh, the sort of, uh, the slum area, El Torillo. Yeah. You know, he thinks he hears his family. He's hears the same sort of echoes from the first invasion where Luisa is saying that the bombs are safe now. Like, um, they know not to kill, um, civilians anymore. Like it's fine. And then Luisa is like, I don't, I don't care what you are, or who you are, like just come back. And um, he's just totally, he's left. Um, and he's, it says like he doesn't care about suits anymore because he, uh, he's, he said people must wear what they liked, and the best people didn't have a choice. He noticed. And then mm-hmm. finally, we get to where he's walking on the valley into town. You know, he's still heading towards uh, basically where Marta is. Um. And it says, uh, it was the center of the orange fireball that kept its eye firmly on him while he walked, ordering him forward, talking to him in the voices of all the new good Panamanian neighbors. It was not too late for him to get to know. And certainly in the place that he was headed for, nobody would ever again ask him to improve on life's appearance. Neither would they mistake his dreaming for their terrible reality. And so that's where it ends. Um, yeah. We're not really sure a, what happens to Pendle, you know, yeah, exactly. killed in this invasion going down there. Um, it's not clear if he was killed in the invasion. Like, we don't know because the English press won't talk about it. I think it's a great way to end a book like this where you can kind of read a lot of different endings into it. And a lot of my favorite, um, you know, fiction is is like this where it's somewhat open-ended where you could yep. kind of envision many different things happening. Like, you could envision him kind of surviving and actually like pulling through all this and turning his life around, or you could think he died on the spot, or you could think he becomes like a shell and, you know, just wallows in depression for the rest of his life. Like all of those things seem possible in this moment. And it's kind of a, it's, you know, for what I thought was a pretty uneven book with a lot of extraneous stuff that could have been pulled out and, and, you know, cut it down by 200 pages. 
there's still these moments of John LeCrae's best writing in here. And these last few chapters were example of that, where it's like just such, um, such perfect uh, character building, amazing descriptive writing, and these really interestingly haunting vignettes of people kind of at their worst. It's it's just a really phenomenal way to end. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, uh, I want to bring this up is that this is still one of my favorite John le Carre books, even though I I mean, I've just like, we've talked about all the, like the weak parts of it and like how many, Mm -hmm. how much extraneous it's just, it is still, there's just so many good, good and kind of powerful parts of it. I, I was just thinking that, you know, the whereas like oh he sums up like in these headlines like five pages he kind of sums up the invasion which is like i think is much more like kind of his earlier writing like that's much more something you would have seen in like spy who came in from the cold and i think it just feels kind of out of place just because he has spent a lot of time in this book that he normally wouldn't kind of going through these like describing these kind of things that he you know would never have spent time on in the spy who came from the cold and it just it feels a little out of place but is kind of just classic how you know straight and kind of to the point um uh and you know it is it is still one of my favorite books of his despite Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kind of the issues I have with it. The highs are very high. In yeah. This book. Yeah. I think just the relationships that he has with Mickey and Marta, I think are what really make it for yes. me. I like, yep. I really like Pendle as a character and I just, the sort of depth mm. of loyalty and betrayal that are explored here. Are really interesting. So I believe if I'm not mistaken, we raided uh, a spy who came in from the cold, right? I think we did. Oh, I think we did. Yeah. Oh God. I can't remember what system we rated it out of, but we're gonna go the classic A to F scale. Okay. Um, so we're gonna go around the horn and give this a rating out of we're we're only I I believe, I'm not sure if we said this, but we're rating this in terms of John LeCur the John LeCraig okay. universe. We're not going outside that. So within the JLC EU, um, <laughs> what what grade are you giving this? Emma, you go first. Uh a minus. I think it's one of his finest. Uh, I think a lot of I, I think it's kind of underrated as one of his best. Um, perhaps maybe people have only seen the movie, which I found out has a much lighter ending where no invasion mm. happens. Harry and Louisa reconcile. Like, I don't think there's a subplot with Marta at all. Like, um, none yeah. of this. And so maybe it, it just seems kind of frivolous to a lot of people. But um, I feel that the depth of character and then sort of the experimentation with both style and location make it one of the stronger entries so i'd have to say a minus because i mean i I have noted that uh there were some weaknesses which are you know the louisa character is not great and um uh there's a lot of points where it could have been a lot tighter edited more tightly edited for sure um max yeah i was actually i was gonna go the same grade i was gonna say a minus um for basically the same reasons it's it is one of my favorite books of his and i really enjoyed rereading it there are i think you know on a reread definitely i'd noticed more of the weaknesses than i did on the first read um Mm -hmm. but it's definitely i think you know has some of the some of his strongest writing i've obviously not read at this i have not read at this point all of his books but of what i've read it is still one of my favorites and um as 
as the pod uh, token Jew, I will absolve John <laughs> Carre of any accusations of anti-Semitism. I do, I, I do quote, wow, I do actually speak here, for every Jew in the world. So you can feel comfortable in that this book That's is right. not anti-Semitic. And what about what about you, Tyler? And, and Emma speaks for every wo- woman. Woman, yes. Um, I so I'm going to drag the average. De- I'm going to drag. If we need any orc opinions, we can ask Tyler. <laughs> yes, I'm the pod orc, and I speak for all orcs. Um, <laughs> there is um, for me. So I'm going to drag the average down, maybe just slightly. Um, I'm somewhere between like a B and a B plus, and the only reason I say that is like the. So the the things that I think are amazing about it is actually I I had never read the book before. I'd seen the movie. The movie's like kind of interesting and fun, but not nearly as good as the book. Um there are moments that are as good as anything, you know, that you can read in in fiction in this book. Um but then the the parts that really frustrated me were like these scenes that in some of the books of John Lecrae's I love the most he would have handled the, that entire scene in two sentences and it would have been as impactful or maybe made it better because it's a bit more mysterious. And, but, but part of me is maybe kind of um, projecting a different type of book onto this book and it is what it is. But the things that I really love about it are number one, it's so prophetic in a weird way about kind of our current time and intelligence and war and kind of the rot at the heart of these like colonial um, civilizations like England and the US. This was so written on. before WMDs. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. Yep. And, and it, it's just so prophetic. And and reading it for the, or watching the movie, I didn't, a lot of these themes I don't think came across as strongly. But reading the book, damn, a lot of that stuff is just amazing. And uh, I don't know if another author could write a book like this that's kind of light and funny and pull out some really crazy themes that are still super relevant. So that's like the stuff that I think is amazing. Yeah. Pendle's a cool character. Osnard, I actually think is maybe the best character ultimately because of what he represents in like the current kind of political culture that we're in. But, um, but ultimately I just, honestly, if this was book was like 300 pages or 250, it may be, it may have been like a straight A for me. So Anyway, it's uh, it's like a B plus. I'll give it a B plus so I don't drag the average down too much. No, do it, King. Do whatever you want. Do it. <laughs> My truth. It's International T Bone Day. <laughs> All right, uh, and with that, we will end it there. And uh, as a reminder, we are going to be reviewing the film version of A Most Wanted Man. We will have a special guest, a secret guest that we will announce to massive fanfare um, uh, before our next episode. So take care out there. Watch the movie. It's a good one, I promise. And we will see you next time. It has Pierce Brosnan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wait, no, again? No, no. Oh, Pierce we're, we're talking about Must Wanted Man. Okay, yeah. yeah kind of <laughs> at that part. I thought we were talking about the Taylor Panama movie. Also, do watch the Taylor Panama movie. It's quite interesting. And that one has Pierce Brosnan. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get that to it. Does. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. So we will wrap it up and uh, say good night. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, all. Bye. Bye.